The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, science, and yet another segment on Elon Musk, Psy. Saturday, the 19th of September, 2020. In this episode, I'm joined by Upali Divasekra. She's a molecular biologist and nanotechnologist, a science communicator extraordinaire, and dinosaur evangelist. We'll be talking about many things, including pterosaurs, the causes of supposed journalist Chris Ullman, Donald Trump, cultural Marxism, garlic, racism, and the potential for life on Venus. Phosphine also forms on Jupiter, and Jupiter is a mess. Ah, yeah, and on Jupiter as well. Uh, We explain why biology is better than physics. But it turns out that life has actually recruited these really subtle quantum phenomena for its own purposes. But we don't reveal the secret behind her seemingly immense scientific knowledge. I need to put this differently so it doesn't look like I'm reading Wikipedia, okay. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Excess Garlic Bio-Supremacy with Upali Divisekra. Now, Upali, uh, for me, as we record this on Wednesday, the 16th of September, uh, it's day 183 of the quarantines, for me personally at least. That's <laughs> more than six months now. People are sick of hearing me talk about this. How has it been affecting you? Well, quarantine has affected me in different ways. Uh, we had a harsh level for lockdown much earlier in the year uh, here in Auckland and New Zealand at large, and that was actually it was great for the first couple of weeks and then it was um, mm. uh, very isolating and difficult. Um, and we, you know, my, my friends and I tried to do sort of Friday drinks via Zoom and, and, and so there was, there was that aspect to it. There's this nice sense of community, I think. Um, people went for a lot of walks because <laughs> I know because I for the first couple of weeks I was very good at uh, exercising and so I went for a lot of walks and discovered a whole bunch of new and spectacularly beautiful beaches uh, right next to Auckland as it turns out. Um, but apart from that though, uh, then we went into level three and so on and then we recently suddenly went into level three again because of a cluster that just appeared out of nowhere as it were uh, and they're still not sure how it appeared uh, some people rumor that it's a, it's you know it's a, someone in quarantine escaped. Um, there were a few, but none that we can track to them. None of the cases can be tracked to them. So uh, we're not sure if it was imported through some foodstuffs or frozen frozen goods. So bobbing in and out of different levels of quarantine here is slightly panic inducing, I think. Uh, mm. But it's it's like we're getting better at it as we keep going. So I definitely coped a lot better <laughs> this time around, the second time around. I was prepared. I knew what to do. And I think the other thing is even though people were rushing to the shops, and I, I know that's the thing that happens as soon as restrictions are announced, even though the supermarket's going to be open, uh, I think that people have just sort of gone, you know what, we know what to do. We know how to prepare. We're going to always have about four weeks of food ready, you know, stores and supplies ready to go so it's less um, – frenetic as it was the first time. Well, we've got, as you know, in Australia, a sort of a variety of responses in different cities with Melbourne uh, having to lock down more. 
the way this has been played in the media and therefore, uh, by extension, politicians, has been this kind of mixed bag of hope for a vaccine, economists complaining about the lockdown and and all of their conservative media friends. This is a bit from uh, Tuesday's 7am podcast. Uh, Scott Morrison has been talking up the hope of a vaccine uh, with the emphasis on hope, and that's something the Saturday (laughs) paper's Karen Middleton noted. Yes, it's a challenge, including for the Australian government, to find the right language that is optimistic and confident, but not too confident. Australia needs some hope today, and particularly in Victoria, they need some hope today. And so that is what we're here to deliver today. Uh, the language or the word that Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Health Minister Greg Hunt were using last week was hope. So a homegrown sovereign plan for vaccines is the hope I bring to Australians today. Probably erring on the side of maybe overconfidence a little in the way that they were talking about it. Hopefully that is in the early part of next year. Well, it certainly can under this arrangement be from the start of next year with what we've been able to put in place should the trials and other arrangements be successful. Do you share the Prime Minister's <laughs> hope, Upali? I certainly share the hope that there may be a vaccine available sometime next year. Mm. Uh, what I do not share is the Prime Minister's particular attitude and use of language, uh, I guess, which I feel is very, I mean, you can take it within the context of his response generally at the federal level, uh, his you know, capabilities so far as Prime Minister and his performance. Uh, but you can also take it from, you know, completely decontextualised point of I offer hope to Australia. So, well, vaccination is a thing that happens <laughs> and there are 200 potential vaccine candidates available uh, and having a particular deal with a particular pharmaceutical group isn't necessarily going to mean that we're saved. And I feel like part of the language and part of the attitude that he's expressing is to take away this idea that we are all required to participate in our own safety, in preventing the spread of disease and in maintaining public health. Uh, And what we need is we need something coming from on high to rescue us. And uh, that means that, you know. He's doing the the saviour God thing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, that's the first time I've heard of that. And, And to be honest, I find it very difficult to keep up with Australian politics from New Zealand, and I and I don't understand why, because it's only two hours ahead, and you know, but for some reason, I think because it seems to happen in the past. What is it? It's like a past participle, as it were. <laughs> it's really <laughs> to keep up. But um, just just from what that little clip, I just find that a very strange turn of phrase to use. Yeah, I mean, hope is not a strategy. Hope isn't a strategy. It, absolutely, it is not a response, and it's also just sort of reneging on his responsibilities your your job is not to facilitate a vaccine that's fine that's going to happen anyway it's it's a question of which company you choose to go with and and you know on a personal level i'm certainly hoping that the university of queensland vaccine will be first off mm. you know uh, off the blocks um partly because i think it's a really great idea con- conceptually as a, as a vaccine uh pr- or the, rather the way that they produce the vaccine but this is just a way of saying, I've offered you hope. So you're in this state of despair and lockdown that these horrible states have imposed upon you. And But I shall save you with this. Because, well, the vaccine's not coming till next year. And here and now, people need financial 
and uh, financial support. They need morality boosting, and they need sorry morale boosting. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another whole topic for another time. <laughs> they need morale boosting, and they need. You know, they need a proper plan, a unified nationwide plan instead of this very piecemeal approach. And certainly the piecemeal approach has has very much helped. The states have been doing their best and I have a lot of respect for the premiers who are doing it so so tough at the moment and having to manage this all on their own without a a coordinated uh, federal response. Yeah, and as a a background to that, uh, we've got, you know, people putting out alternative facts, shall we say. And I don't mean the conspiracy theories, and we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Here's uh, a bit from the other day. I'm sorry, this is from Sky News, uh, but here we go. Brace yourself. (laughs) Uh, Very quickly, before we go to a break, James, uh, all this lockdown in Victoria, what's happening in Sweden? Oh, well, Sweden seems to be chugging along uh, pretty well. And in fact, the uh, their strategy seems to be paying more and more dividends with it has now been emerged that only 1.3% of the Swedes who were tested for coronavirus now even have the disease. This tiny proportion go- is down from when it was 19%, which suggests that they've hit their herd immunity. And here's the really interesting thing. Sweden, in the death per millions count, keeps dropping further and further and further down the league tables below all these other nations which sneered at Sweden uh, and said, oh, they're going to kill grandma, blah, blah, blah. Well, it looks like they ripped the Band-Aid off uh, and they're getting on with life. There you go. Well, you know, no lockdowns in Sweden. They just did it all without let nature take its course in their instance. Rita, you picked it right from the word go. You were onto herd immunity. Well done. Yeah, well done, Rita. That's Rita Pahani, who's a News Corp columnist, whose medical qualifications are that she dropped out of a Bachelor of Business Finance course and went to work in a junior role in a bank. How do you feel listening to that, Upali? I think it's really unfortunate uh, misinformation and misinterpretation of what has happened in Sweden. Now, I'm not completely up on the statistics, so I don't want to, you know, speak out of turn, but... Mm. You know, many thousands of people died in Sweden uh, with this approach of supposedly, you know, this imaginary herd immunity approach. There is no such thing per se. Herd immunity really applies uh, to some extent to animals in the wild and when for humans when it applies to vaccination. When we use vaccination, we can talk a little bit more about herd immunity. If herd immunity were actually a successful possibility, we would never have needed vaccines in the first place. Uh, but, you know, people were, uh, young young children were becoming ill with polio way before the concept of herd immunity became a thing. So as far as I'm concerned, this is complete nonsense. Um, but the other thing is like this this constant idea of, well, you know, uh, the numbers number of deaths per thousand is, is decreased a lot. So that's okay. So that makes it fine. And, you know, it's like it's it's a very Malthusian view of, well, you know, a certain number of people are going to die anyway, so why should we worry about it? And as long as it doesn't affect <sighs> me. And the, the real strong attitude is, oh, it doesn't affect me. This is a fantasy. And it's like, well, the, the countries that might be sneering at Sweden, they have had re-emergence of COVID, but the point is they're still dealing with it and minimising the effect on the population because they actually care about their population. <laughs> and so I, 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 don't have a, I don't have patience for these. You know, these I don't know. What are, they are propagandists, I think. I mean, they're, 
they're pushing this line that has no basis in truth. It's purely political. Uh, it's rubbish. Yes. Well, uh, that brings me to the topic of Donald Trump on these oh, sorts of things. Sorry, <laughs> we, we have to do this. Uh, I haven't got the clip handy, but uh, just before we started recording, Trump said that the virus will go away because of herd mentality, which is a lovely oh, slip dear. of the tongue. But he has been talking about uh, the wildfires in the US, bushfires as we, we call them here. And I've got two grabs. Both of these are Donald Trump. Both are terrible. Here's the first. When trees fall down after a short period of time, about 18 months, they become very dry. They become really like a matchstick. And they get up, you know, there's no more water pouring through. And they become very, very, uh, they just explode. They can explode. Also, leaves. When you have years of leaves, dried leaves on the ground, it just sets it up. It's really a fuel for a fire. So they have to do something about it. Yeah, they have to do something about uh, exploding trees. Yeah. And the fact that dry leaves burn. Uh, But moving on, then there was this exchange uh, on some TV program or other. We've had temperatures explode this summer. Uh, You may have learned that we broke a world record in the Death Valley, 130 degrees. But even in greater LA, 120 plus degrees. And we're seeing this warming trend make our summers warmer, but also our winters warmer as well. So I think one area of mutual agreement and priority is vegetation management. But I think we want to work with you to really recognize the changing climate and what it means to our forests and actually work together with that science. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay. It'll start getting cooler. I you, wish, just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> well, I don't think science knows, actually. Science doesn't know, hopefully. Oh, well, um, thank you very much for that, Mr. President. Uh, we shall certainly take your utterances on board and completely ignore them. One of the biggest science stories this week, uh, of course, is about Venus. Uh, last week on the pod, we spoke at length about Venus with Dr. Space Junk, Alice Gorman. Uh, this is very new, uh, and rather than me trying to introduce it, the Royal Astronomical Society uh, does it in 60 seconds. Welcome to Venus. Venus is a second planet from the Sun, and it's sometimes called Earth's sister planet. That's because it's a similar size to Earth, just next door, and its terrain includes mountains and volcanoes. But with clouds made up of sulfuric acid and a surface temperature that would melt lead, Venus is not the sort of place you'd want to live. It's in the news because an international group of astronomers have discovered something unexpected. Using telescopes in Hawaii and Chile, they've detected an interesting molecule called phosphine. The team looked at lots of things that could have created the phosphine, but none of them accounted for the amount they found in the atmosphere. On Earth, we know bacteria can produce phosphine at much higher levels than volcanoes or lightning, so the scientists are excited that they might have found the first sign of life in the clouds of Venus. Bum, 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 
bomb, first sign of life. Is this overselling it? Phosphine. You're a molecular biologist. Explain it all all, of, all at once. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. So in the search for extraterrestrial life, uh, we don't necessarily have a means of detecting it easily. It's not as if you can, you know, train your telescope and then zoom in and zoom in and pick up the bacteria, you know, like a microscope can. Uh, Are you telling me that the tricorder detecting signs of life is not a thing? Not yet. <laughs> so we have to use... Uh, we have to use biosignatures, and the question is, what biosignatures do we use that will not give us a false positive, as it as it were? And so, phosphine is regarded as a as, as a good indicator because it's actually quite difficult to produce naturally, and because proportionally, as as, as the Astronomical Society uh, just just said, proportionally bacteria produce more. So if you get a significant amount of phosphine, you can have a reasonable uh, assumption that, that it might be produced by life or some sort of novel chemical reaction. Uh, so that's really, really exciting. Uh, phosphine is also very unusual. Um, phosphorus is a very interesting uh, element and it's basically part of the backbone that forms DNA. It's also, oh. Yeah, it's also involved. Uh, so in, in, the, in, in the DNA, it's kind of bound to oxygen and uh, then it's bound to other stuff uh, and as part of the, the ribose sugar. And it's important in that respect and it also functions in, in other parts. The That's the organic form and then the inorganic form is... Uh, phosphate, and that's necessary for energy uh, production. Uh, transfer of, uh, of a phosphate is required for energy production inside cells and therefore, you know, all living things. And so that's why you might have heard of uh, ATP, that's adenosine triphosphate, uh, NADPH you might have also heard of. Like I think if you look at a lot of literature, uh, popular literature on energy supplements and things like that and and, and, and and vitamin supplements. They might include things like ATP or ADP and so on. Um, and there are, they also involve phosphates uh, or phosphorus. So if phosphorus is so critical in that sense and quite relatively, you know, unique uh, to life and the products that arise from the use of phosphorus in living things, if you reach a certain threshold then perhaps it is a sign that there is life there. So I would say that you could think of this as a really good lead, but you would still need to go to Venus and then maybe sample the air uh, in that particular part of the atmosphere. So what they did was that, you know, they have long, scientists have long, uh, planetary scientists have long theorised that within this particular part of Venus's at, uh, atmosphere, uh, keeping in mind that Venus is a terrestrial planet like Earth, uh, also a bit like Mars, but it has this, you know, greenhouse effect atmosphere. It's like, you know, the greenhouse effect gone wild, as it were. Uh, and that's that's still a recent phenomenon because I think that maybe Venus was, you know, actually had life at some point or could have hosted life. So it's very acidic, it's very toxic atmosphere, but there are different layers in the atmosphere. And, and uh, planetary scientists have long predicted that perhaps this particular segment of the atmosphere, which is the correct temperature, uh, and has reasonably, you know, useful gas composition and also is the correct pressure. So the air pressure, the temperature, 
uh, is similar to that on Earth. And so it's a possibility that if we found phosphine, maybe there are little, you know, microorganisms floating uh, in that part of the atmosphere in the same way that you might find them in the ocean. You know, you could almost think of it as like the ocean has different levels of life at different depths. But we're looking at it from the gas point of view. Aha, uh-huh. which raises a couple of questions in my head. Mm. One is that surely there is the possibility of there being some completely unrelated process relating to phosphine that we have yet to discover because we only really know our one planet and a certain limited set of conditions. But also, I remember back when I was younger in the United Regions, um, <laughs> There was a lot of writing about life based on silicon instead of carbon. And yes, it would have to be under wildly different conditions. But our carbon-based life is built a certain way because that's the way the Earth is built. Therefore, this is the kind of life that developed here. So maybe there could be another entirely different kind of life on Venus. They're, They're kind of two questions almost at the opposite end of the spectrum about this, aren't they? Well, yeah, I, and it's something I, I feel very strongly strongly about because I, I think it's all very well for us to look for biosignatures. But again, as you say, I'm, you know, I'm of the belief that there are probably forms of life out there that don't relate to our own terrestrial chemistry and biochemistry. Uh, and so how do we know that we're going to find it? I mean, sure, we can definitely, you know, have a good chance at finding forms of life that are like our own. That's not going to be a bad thing. That's going to be awesome. Uh, But maybe we're missing out um, if we don't look for other kinds of signatures, but we also don't know what to look for. So, uh, you know, to start off with, we can only go with what we know and go from there. Um, I am actually reasonably sceptical about this finding simply because, as, as, as you say, it's possible that there are other processes involved. And, and I think especially when it comes to Venus, which is, you know, extremely acidic atmosphere, uh, that perhaps there are chemical reactions that we're not familiar with on Earth happening that result in the formation of phosphine at those levels. Phosphine also forms on Jupiter, and Jupiter is a mess. You know, Jupiter is this huge... A uh, huge, heavy planet uh, with incredible pressures. Uh, it's very, very hot. The radiation is intense, uh, so intense that, you know, when you send a spacecraft there, uh, uh, you know, an orbital probe or something, it has to be shielded or the equipment has to be sort of shielded to some extent because of the immense radiation from Jupiter. So it's uh, what I would like to see is I think it would be nice to send a probe to Venus again because we haven't done so for a very long time. It's been a long time since the uh, the Venus emissions, which I think in the 70s perhaps. Uh, all the way up, uh, as we explored in the last podcast with Alice Gorlam, all the way up to the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, and we played a clip from Venera 14 in 1982, which actually had a microphone on it and recorded what seemed like wind gusts but terribly alien wind gusts. Anyway, that was last week. Yeah, yeah, no, I recall that. Yeah, and and so we're dealing with very different things. Now, I know you're a big fan of Jupiter. Yes. Are you disappointed that this was a discovery on Venus? Slightly. I'm not Uh a fan of Venus, but it is interesting. Uh, There's a possibility of, you know, actually landing there. Uh, and exploring it further in a way that Jupiter, you know, can't give us, 
you know, won't fulfill those particular needs. Uh, so certainly I would like it to be Jupiter, but Jupiter is unrealistic. It's, it's just too much of a mess uh, to be a candidate, but its moons are a better chance. And so I'm hoping that, you know, the Jovian moons will give us some really great news or at least Mars will uh, some next 20 years. Uh, so, so yeah, but um, Venus is still a very interesting planet for sure. Uh, one of the benefits you get if you are a subscriber to this podcast, by which uh, I mean not that you do a podcast thing and listen to it regularly, but you give me money on a regular basis, is you get to insert your brain into the podcast, either in the form of trigger words or conversation topics. Uh, and Katrina Zetti, who's uh, a long-term uh, supporter of the, the pod, uh, has thrown in the trigger word pterosaur, pterosaur, uh, <laughs> which, Upali, you are a dinosaur evangelist, I know, mm-hmm. which means you are a dinosaur that evangelizes religion. No, it means the other thing. Uh, and so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I evangelize about dinosaurs because they're freaking yes. awesome. <laughs> Pterosaurs. Look, I'll let you do the the main thing obviously but uh the internet says they were the first vertebrates to take to the skies that's a wonderful trigger word i think i'm used to associating trigger words with negativity rather than stuff that i love yes, exactly <laughs> but this is this is an excellent trigger word thank you so much for that so pterosaurs are a, a class of animals that we associate with dinosaurs because of the way that you know we we were educated about dinosaurs when we were kids is a bit different to the way kids aren't educated about them now but you know you saw a world full of dinosaurs you'd see t-rex and stegosaurus and all the you know all the old favorites like brontosaurus uh usually around a volcano in in the children's science books Mm -hmm. uh, and some pterosaurs in the sky and we always thought that pterosaurs were called pterodactyls uh, and we also didn't realise that T-Rex and Stegosaurus lived many hundreds of years apart, millions of years apart, in fact. So pterosaurs, you might like to think of them as flying dinosaurs, but they're not actually dinosaurs, uh, and they belong to their own group, um, and they are the first vertebrates to take to the air. So the first creatures on Earth to take to the air were insects, uh, and back in, you know, 100, uh, 340 million years ago, there were giant dragonflies, metres-long dragonflies in the air. Ah, I was wondering because, again, those childhood memories of pictures of the dinosaur era had dragonflies as the insects, not yeah, so, all the other kinds. Yeah, so insects used to be huge and, and we suspect it may be that there was a lot more oxygen around at the time and so that's why... These uh, insects and other creatures grew to such enormous size. Um, t- pterosaurs are not actually dinosaurs. That's that's the thing. They belong to their own uh, grouping, and I don't think they're actually even archosaurs. So archosaurs are the sort of ancestral reptilian group that evolved uh, into crocodiles, and then there's a branch that were dinosaurs and, 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 uh, and a few other things. Uh, but pterosaurs are not from that as far as I know. 
And they're astounding creatures because they're sort of like um, bat nightmares, you know, like the uh, the pre precursors of bats but are terrifying and they came in all kinds of sizes. So they were sort of taking that niche of uh, uh, animals or birds that fly around and, you know, they might catch fish or they'll, uh, they'll eat worms or whatever it is. They're filling a particular niche that is now filled uh, by birds in ecosystems. And I really love pterosaurs because, I mean, they're kind of like these really weird, like almost human-shaped bodies attached to these wings. Like if you've ever seen a model of a, of a pterosaur, if you've, uh, if you've seen a drawing of it, you'll actually see that, you know, on the underside, they are terrifyingly human in, in their body structure. <laughs> so my favourite one is called Hetzogopteryx, but it also has its own alternate name, which I can't remember right now. Um, and it belongs to the uh, Asdarkid, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, group of pterosaurs, and they had these very long, elongated beaks and so on. But that's not the interesting bit. The interesting bit is that these guys were like 11 metres tall or something. What? What? And the wings could go up to six meters. Like wow. it's basically the size of a small plane. You know, you, there are some samples uh, where it's, you know, like a 12 meter wingspan or something. And it's, it's, wow. it's about 10 to 12 meters in length. And some of the skulls uh, can go, well, they predict can go up to about, you know, three meters in length. That's crazy. People who follow me on Twitter uh, will know uh, my friend Mark Newton has his own uh, sporting aircraft, a Vans RV6, little two-seater aerobatics rated plane. Its wingspan is seven metres. So your not dinosaur (laughs) is nearly twice the wingspan. God, that is just genuinely terrifying. Ah. Can you just imagine a landscape where these guys lived. I mean, they would block out the sun when they fly and they can fly, right? There's a skin and bone that is heavier and bigger than human beings and they can fly. And they also kind of, they, they, they predict that because they have little claws on the end of their wings, that they sort of basically walked around, you know, on two feet in their wings and uh, surveyed, you know, the, 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 the lands as it were. I mean, it's thrilling and terrifying. <laughs> well, look, speaking of dinosaurs, uh, Greg Moore, a, another uh, long-term supporter of the pod, oh, uh, he is Rezel Snark on the Twitters, yeah. uh, he, he bought himself a whole conversation topic, although pterosaurs turned into a pretty – Katrina Zetti, you got really good value for money out of that one, <laughs> let me tell you. Okay, why is Chris Ullman – asks Greg Moore. Chris Ullman, for those of you internationally, is an Australian political journalist. He is one of these people who um, not only is convinced that renewable energy doesn't work and when anything goes wrong with the electricity grid, he blames wind turbines, even though it's coal power stations falling apart. Uh, And today, as we record this, uh, he's, he's had a go as well about... The coronavirus, uh, and yes, we should be doing the greatest good for the greatest number, and the Victorian solution of locking down the state punishes the many for the few. It preferences the very old over the young, mortgaging the future of the entire school and working age population somehow. 
It's hard to imagine how you could design a policy which is more profoundly unfair or damaging to a society. Now, before I ask you for your comment, Upali, whenever someone says, it is hard to imagine X, that's a statement about their lack of imagination. Because quite frankly, I can think of plenty of policies that would be more cruel. (laughs) Setting that aside, Chris Ullman is again a a representative of this, I am in the media and have uh, a, a platform, therefore I understand things, isn't he? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, journalists do have to consume a lot of information very quickly, uh, make an assessment so that they can report it. And so often, you know, they will need expert advice. They need to be able to communicate that information uh, in a manner that, you know, a large percentage of the population can understand. And they also need to have some degree of critical faculty in what they're reporting. You know, they need to be able to ask the right questions. And I would say that as far as Chris Ullman goes, he does neither of these things. Uh, he has no pretense of objectivity, which is at least something that, you know, the pretense of objectivity or attempt at objectivity is something that journalists and scientists, in principle at least, have in common, even if not in practice. Or at least put your um, your viewpoint on the table. Yeah, if you have a particular animus towards whatever, you know, it might be, yeah, you should sort of point out and say, well, here's, here's my particular vested interest in that. Uh, you know, we are, as scientists are required to do that, and I don't see why journalists aren't also. Well, technically we are required to <laughs> declare anything that could give the perception that we're biased. And some mastheads, and I write for ZDNet and occasionally for Crikey and others, they have quite a strict policy about that. So even if I'm writing about... Uh, say, for example, Kaspersky Lab, the Russian um, cybersecurity firm, I will declare that in the past they have um, paid for some airfares for me so that I could get to their thing. Like, I don't know why this is so hard. You just write it down, except that journalists at some other mastheads, and this includes like major newspapers in Australia, they will be writing about uh, international policy in the Middle East, in particular Israel, and they don't declare that their study trip to Israel was paid for by the Israeli government. Wow, okay. Yeah. Is Yulman on that list? I don't know. So let me clear. I, I, and I should say, I have no reason to believe that he is doing anything untoward in that way, but he does seem to have certain idée fix. What's the French word? Yes, things that he fixates on. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, the unreliability of renewable energy. Uh, another is the phenomenon known as cultural Marxism, okay. which is not an actual phenomenon, but the idea that academia is infused with this century-long conspiracy to uh, introduce Marxist thought to to, to everything. As you say, he gets to present a lot of these views, as he has in today's article, as he has uh, when talking about energy grids, uh, as fact and is immune uh, to persuasion. And if anyone presents him with facts, that counter his narrative, well, he just blocks them. 
Where do these people come from? <laughs> I think it's really unfortunate in Eelman's case because he was regarded as very much a senior political editor on mm. uh, and commentator on, on the ABC. And personally, you know, this is my opinion is that I feel he really diminished the ABC by being there, by his his very partisan views. So the thing is, mm. obviously, you know, journalists are not necessarily going to be completely objective. They'll have their own political opinions. Fine. That's normal. That's just reality. But you don't get to sort of, you, you can be an op-ed writer, but I don't think you're necessarily a journalist at the same time. Uh, and I, or you can be both, but you have to accept a contradicting opinion or opposing data and take that into account. And he does neither of these things as well. Like he's, he's, as you say, he's a certain uh, ID fix. Uh, he has a certain view of the world and he only consumes and propagates information that he feels supports it. And so I think that's sort of like the classical current right wing playbook, which is we're just going to ignore facts that don't suit us. And we will only cherry pick the facts that suit us, and I've, that that causes real harm uh, in in this particular time. We're having to battle so many things, um, misinformation wise. We're trying to battle a pandemic, you know. Western nations have been preparing for this for about twenty years. I've lost count of the number of seminars that I used to go to as you know, a, as a, as a research assistant, as a trainee. As a, as a molecular biologist, I've been to so many seminars every few years where we have a kind of an update on how the flu vaccine is going, why we have a different one this year, what was involved. Mm -hmm. Because we know that at some point uh, nature's going to evolve a virus that will be as deadly as the flu in, I think it was 1918, the so-called Spanish flu, even though it was actually from America. Mm -hmm. And we need to have a way of dealing with it. Uh, and it's... It's astounding kind of, to kind of watch people who are not experts uh, speak as if they are, right? Now, I did say that, you know, yeah. of course, I understand and expect that journalists will, you know, have to engage in a, in, in a certain amount of uh, analysis and reporting. But Ullman considers himself capable of analysing things he doesn't know or understand uh, and mm. purely through a political lens. He thinks that he can use his political lens to analyse everything and to interpret everything. But the problem is that for many things, his particular approach, the framework of understanding that he comes from, doesn't actually apply. His article today was just, I think it was quite embarrassing. He doesn't even live in Melbourne. He was crit criticising the response of the Andrews government. And there were one or two valid points about, say, you know, the high-handedness of police officers and so on. That, mm -hmm. well, that's a fair criticism. But the thing is that he basically doesn't believe in restriction of movement or isolation of cases, uh, and he, his, by his economic calculations, um, again, is he an economist and does he have the capability to even make that assessment um, in a meaningful way? Uh, it, 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 it's not there. He doesn't have that, but he's not interested in hearing anything else. <laughs> yes, and he also repeats... This this logical fallacy, which is the expert said six months ago or whenever, hey, there will be this problem unless we take action. So the leader said, all right, we'll take action. And then people like Ullman go, wait, you said there would be all these deaths and there haven't been. 
It's like, no, you've missed the second half of the sentence. I, I know, that's and that's the thing that really kind of stuns me. It's sort of like, please address the actual <laughs> logic of this. Like, is there some something missing? Like, did you not hear that bit? Or or are you so kind of, um, are the brain worms sort of getting to you that you think that everything is partisan and so the, only the first part applies and logic is, I don't know. Look, I, I don't even know what kind of fantastical processes are happening. <laughs> Look, I, I think more and more in the same way that you've got those brain worms that cause snails to go up to the top of a, a leaf so that birds will eat them, that there is a... Like, if if there's a worm that can do that to snails and there's another one, that cat thing that does something similar, there must be brain parasites for humans that work in really subtle ways to do that. That's my theory. Well, that, that's a very sort of kind assessment, I think, that kind of diminishes personal responsibility, which I understood that, you know, Yulman would really quite believe in as long as it applies to other people. <laughs> Uh, okay, look, that's probably enough about uh, Chris Ullman. Greg Moore, Rezol Stark, thank you very much for that input. Uh, speaking of input, you can, of course, uh, input your input into uh, this podcast over the next couple of weeks, or, or any time for that matter, but specifically now because we're in the middle of this spring mini-series. Two more episodes to go. Next up, my guest will be Fiona Patton, MLC, of the Reason Party in Victoria, formerly the Sex Party. She's been on the pod before, uh, so as you know, if you've listened to them, it will be great fun. Uh, if you have some sort of politically melbourne -y questions for Fiona Patton, uh, you'll need to get your trigger words and conversation topics to me by midday, Monday the 21st of September. That's only... Well, less than two days away, so uh, extract the digit there, Monday the 21st of September. If you would like to have input, then if you become a subscriber to the podcast, you know, money sense, uh, then you can buy trigger words and conversation topics. Go to skank.com.au slash subscribe. That's skank.com.au slash subscribe. So Fiona Patton next week, and then the week after that, Father Carl Sinclair, who's uh, a local Catholic priest out in Orange in uh, the central west of New South Wales. Should be some fun things to talk about there. I'll give you more of a reminder next time. So I've told you how to subscribe. If you just like to throw a tip into the pot, you can do that at stillgarian.com slash tip. If you find all this confusing, just go to the 9pmedic.com and things are kind of cross-linked from there. This episode, thank you very much to Simon Harris. Uh, Simon, for your continuing generosity, thank you very much, uh, plus one other person who wishes to remain anonymous. But look, please consider all that because this possible, this possible is made podcast by you, the generous listeners. Um, all right, Gertrude, thanks for coming out. Um, 
So what you're, the, the beeps you're hearing are real-time signals from the neural link in Gertrude's head. Yeah, look, you will have heard that same grab uh, in the podcast two weeks ago. Elon Musk putting uh, an implant into Gertrude the pig's head. Uh, he has another pig which had um, the implant fitted and then later removed, and he reckons that pig is happy and healthy. Uh, I mean, and we trust Elon Musk. Upali, Elon Musk is your favourite entrepreneur, isn't he? He's my favourite person in the whole world. <laughs> Why is that? Well, you know, he sicked about 20 million of his followers onto me for like two weeks uh, and made my online life hell, uh, resulted in many people uh, trolling me for quite a long time. Uh, I had uh, professors in completely unrelated fields getting in touch with me to tell me off uh, for using the term nano. Uh, so, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, to make that clear, you... You work in nanotechnology and have done and actually kind of know about it. Yeah, so I'm uh, my my doctor uh, my doctoral projects were in nanotechnology. So uh, for me to have that particular response was confusing to say the least. <laughs> yes, I, I mean I should say that what Elon Musk said was that nanotechnology doesn't exist, didn't he, or that it's all a fraud? Yeah, he basically said it was. Um, and this is what some of the professors who got in contact with me said. It's like, oh, it's just a, it's 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 a glamour term to to get grant money. And uh, one, wow. yeah. So one professor in particular was actually a professor of law and had worked with uh, a scientist who actually agreed with Musk and wrote about how he agreed with Musk. Um, that it was used a lot in the early 80s and nothing's actually come out of it. It's just like the term micro and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so, you know, my discussion with him, I pointed out that obviously it's changed to some extent because we actually are producing nanomaterials and nanotechnologies now as opposed to the early 80s, which he was referring to. Uh, and the irony is there's probably some of them in his goddamn spaceships. Yeah, so the batteries that are involved in his cars and in, in, in other sort of, uh, you know, equipment, there is it is extremely likely that there's a lot of nanotech, and particularly in the batteries, because nanotech is is getting really good at improving batteries, and so hopefully that means that uh, our transition to renewables will be much easier because we'll have batteries mm. for storage. Um, but the other thing about uh, nanotech is like, <laughs> I mean, for him to say uh, it's complete bullshit is like, well, okay, but there's like several journals and thousands of papers, so I think you're kind of the wrong one here. <laughs> <laughs> It's with that. So, so bearing all that in mind, would you accept a brain implant from Elon Musk so you could summon an Uber by just thinking about it? Look, not going to lie, there was an there was a survey in like the late nineties floating around on the internet as it was then, where you know what, what's your level? I think it was the Geek Code, it's the Geek Code, and one of the things, oh yes, you remember the Geek Code, and and so one of the things was like, uh, would you? How addicted to the web are you? And then there was a range of things. Mm. And then the final, you know, the boss level was, no, I will have a cybernetic interface installed into my skull. And at the time I thought, ha-ha, yeah, um, definitely doing that, you know, back when I was like <laughs> 17. <laughs> and, 
here it is, the cybernetic. See, seventeen-year-olds are indestructible, right? <laughs> you know, you go, yeah, yeah, give me, give me the toy. So I would be skeptical of putting anything that is hackable into my brain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything that is. We have that- learned things since the nineties. <laughs> Um, you know, it's not isolated. You can, you know, connect to the hive mind. And I don't understand this urge to do so, to collect to the hive mind. You know, Musk will often criticise the concept of a hive mind. But what he means is, you know, the political po- po- the political views that he doesn't subscribe to. Anyway, Well, the hive mind is his 20 million followers who suddenly pounce on anyone even vaguely critical of Elon Musk. Yeah, you can't even say I don't like your hair today or something like that. Or, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've com- I complimented him many times on a lot of SpaceX launches because yeah, SpaceX is Because cool. they, they're really cool and they work, and they're, right? Yes, they're cool and they work. Um, but also, you know, he doesn't actually do the research and the hard yards for it. So, you know, but, uh, yeah. So- Therefore, I now realise... He's a lot like Thomas Edison. He's got this whole vast team of scientists and technologists working away to make the cool stuff, but he takes credit for it all. It's a very, He's the face of it. Yeah, and I think it's a very sort of, look, I can't speak for other countries, but, I mean, Edison's a very famous example. And I think it's that sort of capitalist scientist, you know, making it money on his own inventions that really appeals to people. And so for... A lot of people he's, you know, because he actually is taking, you know, renewable energy seriously. He's made, you know, a, a concerted effort to transfer, you know, to help us transition to electric cars and so on. You know, all those things I respect and admire. And that's the problem because there, there, there are these cool things that he does. And then the flip side is he decides he's going to build a, like a little metal box to put tie soccer players in to get him out of a cave and then when he's told that's not going to work he goes off into a big sook and calls everyone a pedophile yeah and and that's the problem it's like uh i don't think that anyone has ever said no to him um i don't know whether uh he you know his mum maybe didn't tell him no you can't do that or perhaps you should think about that <laughs> um and uh you know his mum also got involved in the big fracas two years ago but um it's, yeah, it's a problem because he's clearly a very spoiled, wealthy guy who comes from wealth and ma- also made his own wealth. I mean, you know, he was part of PayPal and so on. And he's doing really good things with his money. He's doing inventive and really interesting things with his money. But he's also... Uh, here, here we go. He's a white South African. That tells you all, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it does look that way. <laughs> I try not to say that, but it's not- yes, I know. You know, you can't write off an entire nation because of a its past and b some of the uh, more egregious representatives of the the descendants of that past. But yes, <laughs> yeah, you know, his dad owned an emerald mine in South Africa at a time when apartheid was still law. So yeah, yeah, no, you know, he's got some. Attitudes which are not necessarily widely appealing, but I think people will forgive him his various behaviours and attitudes because uh, they've made an assessment that what he's doing is better. <laughs> Look, before we leave the illustrious uh, Mr. Elon Musk, we should go back to Gertrude. Is is there anything that we should really note about Gertrude the pig? So the interesting thing about Gertrude is, first of all, it's very sweet, I think, that you can listen to brainwaves from a pig and think it's something amazing. Um, but there's also the fact that 
this, so this is Neuralink, I think. And initially Neuralink mm. did involve some degree of nanotech, but that platform didn't work. So what they have ended up doing is sticking a whole bunch of ultra-fine microwires into the pig's brain. So you're sort of kind of wandering around with this thing stuck in your head. Uh, so that's why I wouldn't <laughs> subscribe to it or use it. And also, you know, I, I have my own internal inner life and I like to be in touch with reality. But just as a side note on that, there are, I, I'm, I've met some very, very talented uh, doctoral students who are working on brain implants that will help people retain memory, uh, that will help them to think better, particularly during in neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And that involves nanotech and it involves, you know, little little grids and all kinds of things. And it's the structure, the physical three-dimensional structure of these uh, materials that can be implanted into the brain to, you know, prevent memory loss and so on. So I feel like there's two contrasting approaches and two contrasting uh, goals here. And one is to be able to order an Uber um, from your brain, which is very useful for disabled people. Perhaps in the long term, if, if you have to have, say, if you want to have artificial limbs, if you can have that kind of communication, that'd be awesome. The point is, is the technology good enough? Is it safe enough? Uh, is it actually working in the way it's supposed mm -hmm. to? Because you have to, you know, just because you can detect brainwaves doesn't mean that you've detected thoughts. And you have to figure out how you can translate that into the thoughts that are being thunk, right, as it were. And more <laughs> scientists have still not achieved that. I'm kind of sceptical that Elon Musk will. <laughs> Continuing a, a kind of personal thing here, um, I mean, your relationship to Elon Musk is, of course, completely personal. This isn't quite as personal, personal as that, okay? Your pinned tweet, it says, photosynthesis involves manipulation of quantum physics to generate energy. Butterflies diffract light through nanostructures to create iridescence. Porpoises can direct sonar beams through their anatomy. The verdict is in biology is greater than physics. And I will mention before I throw to you that the porpoises thing uh, relates to a new scientist, uh, new scientist uh, article from 2017, uh, which says that porpoises have these kind of bone, air and tissue structures in their skulls that allow them to focus their bips and bleeps and noises into a directed sonar beam and they can change the width of that uh, and then the article says how they focus the beam is something of a mystery particularly as the structures that produce the sound which are called phonic lips and I kind of like that they're smaller than the wavelength of the clicks they produce so okay biology is greater than physics <laughs> Tell me about that. Okay, so this is just a very cheeky sort of thread, obviously. Um, I got a lot of responses. The word troll uh, comes to mind. <laughs> it's not necessarily trolling, but maybe a little bit because I think that, you know, <laughs> widely there's a perception that physics is um, this kind of magical celestial knowledge, and it is. It does involve that. It involves the most fundamental processes that happen in the universe as well as, you know, the larger ones like, um, you know, motion and whatnot, motion of planets. 
but the thing is that there's this perception that only physicists can understand everything, that physics can derive everything and only physicists know everything. And so biology is often treated as this, as this sort of poor younger cousin or something uh, of science. And, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, it's wet, it's sloppy. It's sloppy and it's not as you know. precise. You know, you can't, you can't derive very nice simple formula, formulas or formulae from it which you can in physics. And of, but, of course, everything in the universe is physics, so, you know, it's kind of a moot point. And I know that, and I would also hope that people would know that, <laughs> you know, I understood that as a molecular biologist um, and someone who works in nanotech. But the, also the point I wanted to make was that we are in, you know, we have been engaged in this process for hundreds of years of trying to understand how the universe works. Uh, and... The early part of the 20th century was full of these incredible discoveries in atomic physics. And it was like, you know, that's it, we found it. We found the secrets of the universe. We understood it. And the, the phenomenon... Well, calling someone an Einstein... <laughs> yes. ...is like the greatest compliment, right? Absolutely. Well, in, in this field, yeah, it's being an Einstein. Exactly. And, you know, again, quick nip over to that concept of the lone wolf. It turned out that Einstein actually worked with a few bu a bunch of other people and his first wife might actually have been involved in some of the work and he didn't credit Ah, it. Yeah, which has been... Actually, that never happens, does it? Oh, gosh. It's no. so disillusioning to me. <laughs> anyway, so leaving that aside, <laughs> um, <laughs> the processes and, and the phenomena that were observed uh, by those, those physicists... Uh, some of whom were theoretical or experimentalists, they discovered quantum phenomena and they discovered quantum mechanics. And so that was happening at the atomic level and they had to generate experiments for it and so on and so forth and generate theories. But what I find really interesting is that, you know, we tend to think of life as being macro, right? It's multicellular organisms, it's plants, it's human beings, it's mammals, it's, you know, uh, all kinds of different living things and they're large uh, or you can look at them through a microscope and they're visible and they're tangible. Um, and therefore we think of it as, you know, it feels more tangible than a lot of things in physics. It feels more linked to reality as we perceive it, right? But it turns out that life has actually recruited these really subtle quantum phenomena for its own purposes. And so while there are, say, like we talked a lot about phosphine in chemical reactions before. Um, so there are those sort of basic chemical reactions that happen in the body that produce energy, absorb nutrients, make proteins, and, you know, that sort of thing. That seems really ordinary chemistry, but it's intriguing to me that they then take this basic chemistry, they're living things where that, uh, so let's talk about plants, um, the, the photosystems that harvest light from the sun and then convert it into food into glucose direct you know so it's basically it's it's turning sunlight into sugar or into food it involves these massive proteins called pho photosystems and they actually use really novel quantum phenomena that we haven't observed elsewhere in that process wow it's not just like you know oh well you know we 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 there's something called luminescence and luminescence means that, you know, a, an electron has gone to a higher energy level and then dropped down again. And that energy is released as light, you know, mm -hmm. up and down. That's every fluorescent light bulb. Absolutely. But here it's, it's really, I mean, the protein itself has evolved 
to carry out this particular kind of energy transfer. So that is incredible to me. And the other thing is like we used to say living things having colours, right? Um, You know, some fur is brown, some of the feathers are blue, that sort of thing. And we think of it as pigment. We think of of colour as coming through pigment. pigment. Right. Certain butterflies, that colour, which is very shimmery or in feathers uh, on some birds, which are shimmery and iridescent, that isn't because of pigment. It's actually because the actual physical structure of uh, on on these feathers or, or these um, scales on butterflies have tiny tiny diffraction gratings, and so they mess with the light at you know at that at particular wavelengths, so that you end up with that particular kind of blue or green or shimmering orange. Wow, this is more of that nanotechnology, it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is actual nano. I mean, the, the greatest nanotechnologist is nature because we're mm. basically just trying to imitate everything that nature has already come has come up with. So that, that's that's why I wrote that thread because I just thought there's these incredible things that we would not have, you know, we think of them as things that we have invented or observed in purely physical, mechanical terms, but life has evolved to use them and it's astounding. I have, uh, of course, I will, of course, link to that thread on the podcast website. It, you've got some great examples there. The other thing I noticed, though, is that the tweet that you kicked off that thread with, the one about porpoises, was from a Twitter account called Black Physicists. Now, (laughs) we're back to personal stuff. Of course, you being a person of colour and a woman, you, of course, get so much grief (laughs) online, not just from Elon Musk's people, but presumably elsewhere online. Now, I know you can give as good as you get. (laughs) You're not you are not, uh, you know, a shy and retiring creature, well, but surely this stuff in science must still grind you down. Oh, look, it really does. And and to be honest, it has ground me down quite a lot. Um, you know, I've never been someone for like these city internal politics things. Like the only politics that matters to me is at the state and international level, right? But I just mm-hmm. I can't be with these sorts of in, intra-community politics. I'm, I'm not interested. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, I just don't think it matters, but it is obviously fundamental to people's existence. <laughs> they, you know, they like yes. dealing with it. And so I, I'm just worn out by the politics of it. I'm worn out by the lack of representation and diversity because I think there's a lot. Of, there's been a lot of lip service paid to it, and all that's happened is that uh, many people, usually who are not people of colour, will talk about diversity and get promotions for talking about Oh, my God. I saw a conference advertised like it had a panel on on encouraging more diversity yeah. in the particular industry, and it was all middle-aged white people <laughs> yeah, on yeah. the panel. And, and even within the spheres that I've moved in, at least locally in Australia and New Zealand, but particularly in Australia... Uh, diversity is regarded as it's only gender diversity is the only thing that they like to talk about um and so talking about racial diversity is a bit of a a, a no-no so you end up being kind of marginalized if you do that uh so yeah it's it's kind of exhausting and wearisome to me to Mm. and when i when i helped set up real scientists i did it because i wanted to help democratize science i want people to be able to access scientists and science and to participate, you know, to feel encouraged to participate in science. You know, maybe they'll go and sign up for a citizen science project or, um, 
get their kids to talk to the scientists and that sort of thing. And to also for people to see how how much variety in you know the kinds of people who go into science that you know we're we're pretty ordinary you know people we're not all pulled to that <laughs> you know we're very oh, all right all right yeah 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 you know <laughs> no it's, like, it's 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 just another bunch of people pursuing what interests them I mean mm. some of the people we've had in real scientists are people who came from you know completely non scientific backgrounds we've had like a makeup artist we've had. Um, people who worked in advertising and who worked in all kinds of other careers and sort of went, oh, actually, I'm really interested in this little thing. And then they end up pursuing it. And it's... And that's brilliant. It's brilliant, right? So, yeah, so that's why, you know, I want to see more diversity and inclusion. I want it to be real. I don't want to be just lip service. I don't want it to just be someone's career move, you know, this tree, which it, which it pretty much has become. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Look, I know that we are in furious agreement about that. So how about a change of pace? How about we talk about chicken? What about chicken? Uh, stand by. This is from the Lincoln City Council in Nebraska, uh, where at the council meetings anyone can come up and talk for two minutes on anything they like. It's good citizen involvement in local government. Excellent. But this man is rather passionate about his favourite food. I promise I won't take up too much of your time here. My name is Andrew Christensen. Uh, I live at 1212 Twin Ridge Road. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. <laughs> I propose that we as a city Remove the, excuse me, I'm trying to. <laughs> I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. We need to teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken and it's delicious. <laughs> I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them buffalo style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long and we know it because we feel it in our bones. <laughs> Thank you. God, I think I'm in tears. <laughs> that is genius. This is performance. I, I, yes. And the, the, the wonderful thing is that I discovered this clip 
because the Twitter account of the Australian House of Representatives Parliament in Canberra tweeted it saying, are you as passionate about something as this man? Well, you can start a petition to Parliament at this web address and get it going. Are we... I can't. Are we failing to educate our children about where meat comes from? I don't want me to answer that question. No, I, I, no, I, I can just move on. I can, um, I can answer it as someone who was a vegetarian. Oh, that's right. See, I thought you were a vegetarian. When did this change? So I changed. So I've been a vegetarian for 26 years. And then last mm-hmm. year I started eating meat again. And the main reason ah. was because I was constantly being ill with one thing or another and it was becoming clear that there's sort of a lot of autoimmune stuff going on. And so I started ah. eating meat again. And I, it's been a bit of a journey because I don't actually like meat that much. Um, but it's, okay. it's a very easy sort of convenience food because, you know, you can just take a bit of meat and, that's it, you know, plonk it on some rice with some salad and that's it, you're done. Um, whereas uh-huh. vegetarianism required me to do a lot more cooking. <laughs> but um, uh, Yeah, because the options when you're eating out are much more limited and blah, 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 blah well, which no, is unfair, but that's another whole thing. Yeah, no, no that's not a whole other thing. But, I mean, to get all the nutrients that you need, you know, if I were cooking a purely vegetarian, I would be making several dishes with several different vegetables um, and it would be delicious but it's a lot of effort. Uh, whereas meat is very simple, you know, here's a flavour bomb and here are the vegetables on the farm. <laughs> so, but it did actually help me. It did help Hello, me. meet my cow, or as I call her, flavour bomb. <laughs> oh, that's uh, trademarked now, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, there we go. So, yeah, so I started eating meat and it is important that people understand where meat comes from. And one of the reasons yes. that I did become vegetarian was because I actually couldn't stand handling meat and I still have issues with it, so I might actually wear gloves, you know, when I'm handling meat because I don't like it. And I also used to work on animals. And so for me it's like, you know, bone and sinew are disgusting. If I can interrupt at that point, yeah. <laughs> you're like I read some of what you've written and you were, you know, cutting up animals, I mean dissecting animals and their hearts still beating after they're dead and all of those things. Yeah. So why does completely dead, presented just as a separate object meat, cause problems? So I used to eat meat. I was brought up eating meat and then I right. went cold turkey. And so I only... So to speak. <laughs> so to speak. And I only started working on animals for about four years and that's that's all the time I've spent working on very tiny mammals. And I had right. a very traumatizing experience. So I actually started off being very detached. But by the end of it, I just found it so hard to work on animals. And you'll find a lot of people do have that issue. Uh, I, I would still support mm. animal experimentation because, unfortunately, that is the best that we can do for now. But um, I really loathed it. And the more I did it, the more I loathed it. So I don't have a problem with cutting up something that's already dead, that's extremely small. But it reinforces the the structures the biological structures in the larger animals that we eat and so when i i, I used to work with mice and so they're very small <laughs> and then if you have to deal with them and they're just a quick mouthful aren't they 
grab it by the tail, flip it down in oh your mouth, God. give it a couple of bites. Uh, v the final final podcast, I guess. And then, um, <laughs> so uh, when it comes to the larger, like a like a, for example, I've bought like a, a leg of lamb or something or a shoulder of lamb, and it's just like, wow, everything is so much bigger and bloodier. It's really disgusting. <laughs> so um, I don't like the smell. And that sort of thing. Okay. But also I think... You would hate eating kangaroo then, I imagine. <laughs> I should, but I am in New Zealand. Uh, but for me, it's also like I, I feel if I'm going to eat meat, I have to accept that this is part of it. And so um, because I do feel physically and mentally so much better having started to eat meat again, um, that, you know, I have to accept it and that these messy bits are just part of the process. Okay, so on a food-related topic, I did see you say the other day that you discovered there is such a thing as too much garlic. Yeah, I never thought it was possible. But I roast, I, I boiled some potatoes and I was actually going to make chips, you know, on my own because I'd run out of chips, frozen chips. And I thought, hey, I'll put two heads of garlic into the roast with a potato because there's nothing more delicious than roast potato and garlic. Uh, and I ate all of it, and um, it was too much. It was too much garlic. I, I can't believe I have okay. to say this. Uh, you are welcome to try this as an experiment on your own, but it was actually too much. <laughs> okay. Then in the aftertimes, <laughs> when we're allowed to travel again, mm. one of my favourite restaurants in the entire world is – uh, in San Francisco, just up the hill from Chinatown. I'm not quite sure whether it's into Thing Beach, whatever it's called, but it is a restaurant called The Stinking Rose, <laughs> and it's all about garlic. Ooh. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So you will say, oh, stuffed chicken breast, and you think that's nice. It is stuffed with about 40 cloves of garlic. See, I think part of the problem was that I didn't have necessarily enough oil and some of the, like if you confit a lot of garlic, you will not be able to stop eating it. So True. confit means that you're kind of boiling it in oil, but, you know, it's not frying. It doesn't take up the oil quite as well. But somehow the way that I cooked it wasn't quite right um, and it wasn't as sweet as it should have been. So I think that a 40-clove chicken breast might actually be nice. Yeah, it's look, it's it's worth going to, um, and they're lovely people. It is kind of a bit busy because it's become obviously a thing to go there. <laughs> um, but uh, look, let's let's wrap up with Prime Minister Scott Morrison again. Oh. We did start with him. Okay, sorry, but yeah, you're of Sri Lankan descent, and. Scott Morrison's Sunday night curry. He says, I'm making it Sri Lankan curry. It's curry night. I mean, is he just fetishizing the exotic? It's kind of neo-Orientalism, isn't it, really? I, 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 I think that he is fetishizing it because he's a politician. He is a person who used to run our immigration policy and very proudly turned back votes and negotiated with the Sri Lankan government to work on boat turnbacks, he has a trophy that says, I stopped these. Yeah. And he's also, because he's had to interact with the Sri Lankan government, which at the best of times is um, not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, th there's the whole rabbit hole of Sri Lankan 
politics, oh, which, oh. uh, yeah, we can't no. really go down that now because we'll be here for another hour. I do not want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, oh. It's a rabbit hole I studiously avoid. But he went there and so because and then he went on Kitchen Cabinet and made a big deal about how he had learned to cook Sri Lankan food and how he loved it. And then he became prime minister. Well, it is it is great food, but so is a lot of great food, it right? Is, it I mean, is. but the thing is that for me, at least, and I think for many other people, it was a very clear approach at rehab- rehabilitating his image uh, because he'd been accused of being extremely racist, which he is, which he was and is. And this is a way. This is a cheap deflection, as far as I'm concerned. And so, if he's going to tell us every Sunday, look at me, I'm making curry. Like, congratulations, you don't need to tell us if you actually like the stuff. We don't need to sure. talk about it all the time. But it's a performance, and I'm sure he does like curry. Uh, I'm also sure that he's not very good at them. But, <laughs> but there are hundreds of thousands of people in Australia who cook spiced food and they don't make a big deal out of it and post it on LinkedIn and they're not politicians, but, yeah, I have. Okay, I'm feeling a bit guilty because, you know, I'm about as white as you can get in Australia from Adelaide white trash of English and German-ish descent. I happen to make a lot of Southeast Asian food because I happen to have started doing it and I post pictures of it. Right. Am I a racist? Of course I'm a racist. Everyone's a racist. Well, look, sure, everyone's a racist, but you're not trying to profit from it. You're not trying to profit no. politically. You cook it because you like it and yeah. you do your best to cook it as well as you can because you love the food. I mean, who does not love Southeast Asian food, which is possibly the greatest cuisines on the planet? Um, uh-huh. Do not do not at us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said possibly. Please remember that I have... <laughs> qualifiers into my statement, therefore you do not need to come at me. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so. We're allowed to have opinions, people. <laughs> um, I mean, our opinions are correct, obviously, and yours are not. Well, but, the other you know. thing I would say that you should probably delve into heritage is schmutzel. You should, you really need to get them. Ah. Oh, no, no, no. I'm into that. Yep. So good. But, um. Yeah, it's a performance. Given the political context and his history and his the uh, his political history as a minister and prime minister, it's, yeah. it's cheap um, propaganda. It's 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 really cheap. It's like I went to a, a function at Parliament House a few years ago now, and Pauline Hanson was there, and it was for Sri Lankans. Uh, it was for Australians of Sri Lankan descent. And this so why was Pauline Hanson even there? That's my question. Why is Pauline Hanson there and Peter Dutton there? Uh, it's like it's just performance. I'm a good guy. Oh. I'm not really racist. Oh. <laughs> Look, on that happy note, <laughs> Should I sound like- we have been talking for a long, long time, okay. uh, and I know the kids will love it. <laughs> Uh, but we we also have lives to go and deal with. So I will just wrap this up very badly and say, Upali Divasekra, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you for inviting me still. It was lots of fun. I'm sorry I kept going on about this. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both, young lady. You and me both. That's the edict for now. The next episode is with Fiona Patton, MLC of the Reason Party. You'll need to get your trigger words and topics in real fast. 
by midday on Monday, the 21st of September. All the links to subscribe and support, etc., are at the, the where are they? The 9pmedic.com. Until next time, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.